Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is World Business Report from the BBC World Service. Hello, I'm Sam Fennick. Welcome to the programme. Coming up... There are warnings we're heading into a global recession. Growth is slowing while inflation is accelerating. How worried should we be? We'll ask one of the IMF's former chief economists. The US has banned computer chip manufacturers exporting to China. The Chinese aren't happy, nor are US exporters. And is it a red flag for Red Bull? We're into a different territory which hasn't been seen before and we don't know exactly what the penalty will be. So it's a curious state of affairs that F1 finds itself within. The Formula One team has been found guilty of breaking race rules. We'll have more details on that coming up. Get in touch with the programme. You can send us an email, world.business at bbc.co.uk. But first, the International Monetary Fund has will unveil tomorrow its twice-yearly look at the global economy. It's not expected to be a pretty picture. The managing director of the IMF, Kristalina Georgievia, has already said that the outlook for the world economy is darkening. Well, to make sense of some of this and to throw forward to what we should expect, we're joined by Kenneth Rogoff. He is the former chief economist at the IMF. Uh, Kenneth, welcome to World Business Report. What should we expect tomorrow? It, It sounds fairly depressing, doesn't it? It does sound depressing. So I think what the International Monetary Fund is going to tell us is that Europe looks very likely to have a recession, possibly a bad one. China is slowing dramatically, maybe not quite a recession, but for them it'll feel like a recession. And the United States is sort of the wild card, but the inflation in the U.S. is so high and the Federal Reserve, our central bank, is raising interest rates so aggressively, it could throw even the U.S. into a recession. There's no place to hide if that happens. There's been some talk, hasn't there, that actually it would be, in inverted commas, a good thing for the U.S. to go into into recession because it would slow things down. It would it would might slow that inflation down. Yeah. I don't completely agree with that logic. I mean, yes, inflation got out of control. Yes, it needs to be slowed down. But the question is how fast and how much uh, inflation got to 9%. They clearly have to get it down to 3 or 4%, but do they have to get it all the way to 2%? It's the question. And the, the trouble is, is they're raising the interest rates, but the effect might not come till six months or a year later they won't know. 
Um, we'll see. Right now, they seem the, the U.S. central bank, in fact, all the central banks, seem very, very determined to raise interest rates to fight inflation. And the IMF's telling them to do that on the one hand, but on the other hand, they're saying, watch for a crash landing. Let's have a look at what's happening in Europe. You mentioned it briefly um, at the beginning of the conversation, gas prices and double-digit inflation. How big a part is this playing in the sort of global outlook? Well, obviously, Europe has suffered the most from Russia's invasion of Ukraine with the gas shortage and just the uncertainty and all the problems that they're facing. And it's not easy for them to deal with their inflation, which is really coming from rising gas prices, rising food prices. And so those are recessionary. It's not easy for the central bank to push back. And at the same time, if they raise interest rates too fast to fight inflation, they could get into trouble with Italy, or Italy could get into trouble uh, with its interest rates getting out of control. It's a very tough balancing act in Europe, both economically and politically. Are there any countries in the world that are doing okay? So the Southern Asia, I want to say Indonesia, Vietnam, Malaysia, Singapore, um, Bangladesh are actually doing better than a lot of places. They're benefiting first from that their inflation never got out of control the same way as elsewhere. And second, a lot of companies are saying, well, we're not going to put more money into China. We're going to try to put our production someplace that's not going to get in a tariff war and the geopolitical problems. So those countries are doing well. Also, commodity prices are going up and countries like Indonesia and Malaysia export oil. The Middle East, uh, Saudi Arabia, the Gulf countries, they're swimming in money at the moment with the high prices. But I think the majority of the world is suffering. When the IMF and the World Bank put out a report six months or so ago, David Malpass came on our program and talked about stagflation. Uh, that we were reaching this kind of stagflation point. How, have we moved on from that now? Are we at the next stage of that, whatever that might be? I think we're moving into it. So we've got the flation part of the stagflation, and the stag, which is the slow growth, seems like it's coming hard and fast. 2023 looks like a year of stagflation, and the question is how long it will last. Uh, that's a tough call. Right now, I think the IMF saying most likely it'll feel like a recession, but it won't be so bad. But I think there's a concern that it could be worse. I mean, no one knows. I think Europe particularly has cause for concern with the war, but also in China, also in the US, also in Africa. Potentially, I didn't mention financial problems in some big countries like. Uh, uh, Nigeria, for example, uh, having you know problems. It's a big country. It's an oil exporter, but it, it has a lot of exchange rate problems at the moment. Turkey uh, is a country with a sort of erratic policy. So we, we're probably going to see some significant accidents here, but hopefully it won't permeate the whole world. Well, we will... Um... 
we will wait with trepidation for tomorrow's report. Thank you very much for coming on the programme and uh, explaining some of the things we should look out for. Kenneth Rogoff, uh, former chief economist at the IMF. Thank you very much. Now, shares in U.S. semiconductor firms fell on Monday after President Joe Biden announced restrictions on exports of microchips and chip manufacturing equipment to China. The new rules make it very difficult for Chinese companies to get hold of or manufacture their own advanced computer chips. The Biden administration is trying to stop China developing artificial intelligence and supercomputing. Well, to help us understand a little bit more about what's going on here, we're joined by Chris Miller. He's the author of The Chip War, and that's the fight for the world's most critical technology. Chris, thank you for coming on. Um, If you could then, in a nutshell, explain how we've got to where we are now, because these bans that came in at the weekend on Friday evening, they're they're part of a bigger program of restrictions, aren't they? That's right. Since around 2014, China has been pouring billions of dollars into efforts to build up its own semiconductor industry. And up to this point, China remains very dependent on foreign chip technology. But there was concern among U.S. policymakers that if China built up its industry, it would be able to apply these capabilities to military systems. And so over the past five years, the U.S. has been cutting off certain types of technologies Uh, in terms of the ability of Chinese firms to access them. But the announcement last week was uh, a dramatic expansion of both restrictions on the types of chips and also the types of chip-making machinery that can be transferred to China. Because as you say, before the weekend, it was the sales of missile parts and nuclear materials. But now that's been extended to include these semiconductors that could go um, in mobile phones, couldn't they? So that's quite significant, isn't it? Well, that's right. And and these restrictions are not solely focused on uh, militarily relevant chips. And indeed, most chips can uh, don't necessarily operate a military system or a consumer system. They're dual use. They can work in both. And so the U.S. has adopted a strategy of trying to keep Chinese technology far behind what the cutting edge is in the U.S. or Taiwan or South Korea. And because every advanced semiconductor production facility in the world relies on a small number of uh, machine tools produced by just a couple of companies, uh, mostly in Japan and the US, uh, the United States has a lot of leeway to restrict other countries' ability to build up their own chip-making facilities. So prior to this, they were trying to keep the Chinese government behind them in terms of their development and investment, but now they want to, it seems, cut them off completely. Well, China will still be able to buy some low-tech chips. Um, but yes, the, the U.S. government uh, wants to increase the gap between where China is today and, and where the U.S. will be going forward. For a long time, the U.S. government had a policy of keeping China around two generations behind in chip-making technology. But uh, now the perception in Washington is that that doesn't give the U.S. enough of a margin of error in a period in which advanced chips are increasingly relevant for military technology, whether it's advanced drones or uh, other types of autonomous systems. And so the U.S. wants to increase the gap in chip technologies because that will uh, increase the U.S.'s ability to apply artificial intelligence in advance of China's ability to do so. Why has there been a change in policy then? Well, there's a fear that the military gap between the U.S. and 
China is changing in China's favor, and especially in the Taiwan Straits, I think there's no doubt uh, that U.S. policymakers are dramatically more nervous than they would have been a decade ago, uh, both in terms of America's ability to help defend Taiwan, uh, but also in terms of the risk that China tries to increase pressure Taiwan on Taiwan militarily. Over the weekend, Chinese state media and officials warned of economic consequences to this policy change. What do you think they might mean by that? Well, in the past, actually, China has generally not retaliated to U.S. technological restrictions. And today, China's in a, uh, a, a pretty tough negotiating position. China imports more chips than it does uh, importing oil in terms of the number of dollars that it spends each year. And so there's no import that's more important for China to have access to. Now, it will no longer have access to the most advanced chips, but for low-tech chips, China is still crucially reliant on uh, foreign suppliers. So if it begins to retaliate, the risk is that the cost of retaliation is higher for China than it is for the rest of the world. Um, do we have any idea or do you have any thoughts on what that retaliation might look like? Well, the, the track record of the past, to be honest, is that China has announced plans to retaliate. But uh, never and done it. Actually not retaliated. That's right. So the, so it could just be hot air, perhaps. That's, that's correct. It's a serious situation, though, isn't it? Well, there's a, a real risk because the most advanced semiconductors in the world are produced with U.S. technology, but in Taiwan. 90% of the most advanced processor chips can only be made in Taiwan. And so there's a deep interconnection between chip technology and the shifting military balance on the Taiwan Straits. And that's why U.S. policymakers are so nervous. They realize that uh, as uh, China's military power rises, the risk that something goes wrong in Taiwan and thereby imperils the entire global economy increases. Thank you very much, Chris Miller, for explaining that to her. That's Chris Miller, the author of Chip War, the fight for the world's most critical technology. Well, as we said, shares in semiconductor firms in the US fell on Monday and that contributed to the Nasdaq closing at its lowest point since 2020. Uh, Peter Jankowskis from Arbor Financial Services joins us. He's in Chicago. Um, semiconductors were among the worst performers of the day. Um, tell us how far did stocks fall? Well, the overall market was down approximately three quarters of a percent. Uh, for overall, semiconductor makers and equipment manufacturers were down three percent. And then, if you focused on the actual manufacturing sector uh, for semiconductors, they were even worse off. Uh, many of them were down more than four percent. Uh, LAM Research was actually down six percent. So, very dramatic sell-off uh, within that segment of the market. And when you see figures like that, if you're one of these bosses of these tech companies and you see your shares dropping by 6%, what are you thinking? How annoyed are you at this change in policy? Well, I, I, I'm sure that it, it is a, a concern to see the stock price rise, but uh, many of them, I'm sure, are wary of exposure to China as is, uh, you know, given their uh, reputation, if you will, for technology theft, etc. So, um, they're they're probably obviously concerned about the stock price, but they also see the the need for some sort of action to be taking place. Will this settle now? Do you think, or will it continue to be a bit volatile tomorrow? Well, uh, we've we've had a couple of days to digest uh, what's been uh, said. Um, I think there's probably some hope that we will see some stabilization tomorrow. Uh, normally, some of these things take two or three days to play out. 
So we're, we're kind of right in that window that, that we could see some stabilization. The war in Ukraine intensified um, today, Monday. Um, Russian attacks across Ukraine in revenge for the bridge attack at the weekend. What happened to commodity prices because of this? I, I saw that grain prices increased. Yes, uh, they were actually up quite dramatically. Uh, wheat was up more than 6% on the day. Uh, corn was also up 2%. You know, obviously, uh, Ukraine is, is not a big producer of corn, but uh, whenever you, you have uh, a situation like this with a dramatic effect on one commodity, uh, you see it sprinkle over into others where they're alternative uh, to, to those particular commodities. And worries, I suppose, that grains that are coming out of the port of Odessa, you know, tensions getting a bit more heightened, that that might stop. Yes, I I think that that probably is a great deal of concern. And not to mention also that, you know, very directly, all of uh, what's been happening over there is certainly going to be uh, having a negative impact on crops going forward. Uh, You know, it's going to take time to uh, remove mines and and other uh, things that that have uh, landed in these fields, uh, and that's going to have an ongoing effect on on production, even if the war were to end today. Peter Jankowskis, we'll leave it there. That's Peter Jankowskis from Arbor Financial Services joining us from Chicago. Well, the U.S. midterm elections are about four weeks ago away, and today we begin a series on what is often termed dark money in the U.S. campaigns. For most U.S. states, political donors can be made in secret without voters knowing the true origins of the money used to influence the campaign. Our colleagues at the U.S. radio programme Marketplace are examining efforts to require individuals and corporations that donate money to reveal their identities. Next month, voters in the state of Arizona will decide whether large donors will have to come forward. In today's report, Marketplace's David Brancaccio examines the hidden the case of hidden money that may have led to high electricity bills in Arizona. It was early on a Thursday in the home stretch of a campaign some years ago. At Sandra Kennedy's, the ringing wouldn't stop. I finally answered the phone probably about 7.45 and said, geez, you've called me three times. What's going on? Have you seen the, the, the TV this morning? And I said, no. It was 2014. Kennedy was running for a second term on the Public Utilities Commission that regulates power companies, what Arizona calls its Corporation Commission. She checks the TV. And there was this commercial. And I sat on the foot of the bed and went, oh, my God. Kennedy voted for higher sales taxes, but she didn't even pay her own bills. Kennedy was an owner of a restaurant. She says the ad cherry-picked from a lawsuit over the franchise for a Denny's restaurant in which she had a small stake where her husband was chief executive and majority owner. A suit later settled. The ad falsely made it look like Kennedy was a cheat or a crook. And Kennedy, who is black, saw something else in the ad she found disturbing. Each time that ad was shown, my face got darker and darker and darker. The ad seemed to play into racial prejudice. But who was paying for it? At the time, no way to tell for sure, since donors in most states can route their campaign funding through nonprofits that don't need to give out their donors' names. Given her support of solar power, Kennedy guessed it was someone connected to the Monopoly Electric Company she regulated called Arizona Public Service. 
I went from first place 10 points up to I came in last. Well, next to last, but yes, she lost. And two newcomers, seen as friendly to the power company, got elected. The five-member commission would then approve an increase in electricity bills. As for Kennedy, her teenage kids implored her to get out of politics. My son and my youngest said, please don't do that to us again. But after her kids graduated high school, Kennedy ran again in 2018 and won. Back as regulator, she was determined to get to the bottom of those televised attacks. It took a subpoena from her commission. You should see the five binders the company finally sent in 2019. Each is like lifting a Thanksgiving turkey for a family of 10. I probably took three weeks to go through them. It was devastating. They confirmed what Kennedy had long suspected. The source of the money had been not a surrogate, not a troll, but the electric utility itself, APS, through its holding company called Pinnacle West Capital. Serious dollars. I stopped adding at $10.2 million. The company declined our interview request and referred us to its policy. By 2020, there was a new CEO who'd made this promise to regulators. If I can say that under my leadership, Pinnacle West and APS and any of our affiliates will neither directly nor indirectly participate in any election of any corporation commissioner. Well, that was a pledge I demanded at the commission meeting. Bob Burns, now retired, was chair of the regulatory commission at the time. He wants more than a pledge. It's good as long as he's there, but he might go tomorrow. Burns is a Republican who supported Kennedy, a Democrat, to get the electric company to fess up. Burns wants those that spend on races to say it out loud. you got to have sunlight in the election, and so if you're going to spend, you need to report so people know who you're supporting and by how much. That was David Brancaccio reporting for Marketplace for the BBC World Service. And now to... Formula One, where the sports governing body has found Red Bull guilty of exceeding the sports budget cap. The FIA says the team, whose drivers include world champion Max Verstappen, spent more than the $145 million limit last season. Earlier, I spoke to the BBC's F1 reporter Jenny Gow, and I started by asking her what exactly this budget cap is. So each team can spend that on the majority of the items that they spend money on. There are some exceptions to that rule, like driver salaries and the top salaries of their personnel. But everything within the running of the team has to come into that £114 million cap. Now, it's taken them 10 months to do the audits for all the paperwork to be filed. um, And the results have come out today. And those results do state that two teams have been found guilty of um, breaching that cap. Now, one of them, Aston Martin, have just been found guilty of a procedural breach of the cap. So they've got the paperwork not quite in order. But Red Bull have been found of not only a procedural breach, but also a minor financial breach. So that's less than 5%, which comes in at $7.25 million. And do we know what they've overspent on? No. (laughs) So the FIA have given us this information today. They haven't said what they've spent it on, but what it does mean is it's a minor breach. They have rulings between a major and a minor. So it's a minor breach, which could lead to things like a reprimand, which is basically 
they're told off. Uh, a deduction of drivers and or constructors championship points for the season in question. So last season, all sorts of things are out there to be decided upon, but we don't even know when that decision will be made or what the decision will be. And have Red Bull come out with any statements today? They certainly have. Unsurprisingly, I suppose, Christian Horner, their team boss, has been very adamant in the fact that he didn't think they'd done anything wrong. And today he said he was disappointed and surprised by the FIA's findings. He said the team, um, our 2021 submission was below the cost cap limit, so we need to carefully review the FIA's findings as our belief remains that the relevant costs are under the 2021 cost cap amount. So they are still standing firm that they have done nothing wrong. What have other teams said about this? We heard from teams over the weekend. For example, we heard from the Ferrari team principal, Mattia Bonotto, on Sunday that even a so-called minor breach was a significant offence and detailed the value of an overspend to a team's competitiveness. So people have tried to give it some kind of feeling of what an overspend could actually be. And presumably then we don't know what kind of punishment Red Bull should expect. So there is some precedent which has already been set. So Williams earlier on this year were found guilty of failing to fill in some forms correctly. So not an overspend, but they were fined $25,000 earlier this year. So for the part of this procedural breach of the cap, you can expect something similar, one would imagine. For the financial breach, then we're into a different territory which hasn't been seen before and we don't know exactly what the penalty will be, but actually the other teams will be the ones that help to decide what the penalty is. So it's a curious state of affairs that F1 finds itself within. That was Jenny Gow, the BBC's F1 reporter. Well, Luke Wilson joins me in the studio now with a quick look at some other headlines making the news. And we'll start with the Bank of England, um, their intervention in the UK will end later this week. Yeah, the bank stepped in after the government's mini-budget saw massive uncertainty on the financial markets. It announced a $72 billion plan to buy up government bonds, and that plan ends on Friday. But the bank says it's going to increase the amount of bonds it can buy, and it'll introduce extra support to ease pressure on pension funds. This is all designed to calm any concerns that that market uncertainty will simply start again when the bond buying is over. And the Nobel Prize has been awarded to three economists this year. Yes, former Federal, former Federal Reserve Chair Ben Bernanke, Douglas Diamond, an economist at the University of Chicago, and Philip Dibvig of Washington University. They all won the Nobel Prize for their research on how regulating banks and propping up failing lenders with public cash can stave off an even deeper economic crisis like the Great Depression, like the 2008 financial crisis. The fact that the losses in the 2008 period sort of started within the financial sector in the in the mortgage and banking parts of the financial sector made it particularly bad. Since then, uh, both recent memories of that crisis and improvements in regulatory policies around the world have left the system much, much less vulnerable. Uh, the problem is that um, these vulnerabilities of the fear of runs and dislocations and crises can show up uh, anywhere in the financial sector. It doesn't have to be commercial banks. 
And we'll be talking a little bit more about those three economists in Business Matters. Join us at Midnight GMT. Hi, I'm musician and writer Dessa, and I'm with the Lazarus Heist podcast hosts, Gene Lee and Jeff White, recording a special episode of the show in front of a live audience here in New York. The Lazarus Heist is the hit podcast which tells the story of a group of North Korean hackers who were accused of trying to steal a billion dollars, which North Korean officials deny. We have some very special guests joining us with some fascinating stories as we explore hacking and what we know about life in North Korea. And we'll be answering questions from the audience here and listeners around the world about cybercrime, the Lazarus Group, and the podcast itself. That's The Lazarus Heist Live, a brand new episode from the BBC World Service, available now. Just search for The Lazarus Heist wherever you found this podcast. 